welcome to the CND Podcast. I'm Naima Kalachand and I'm a clinical editor. Today I'll be speaking to Oksana Pysik. Oksana is a Global Engagement Lead and Senior Teaching Fellow at UCL School of Pharmacy. I'll be speaking to Oksana about supply chain issues with the COVID-19 vaccines and the emergence of the new COVID variants in the UK and what this might mean for pharmacy teams. This is what she had to say. Well, the projections on supply vaccines that the manufacturers originally made were very ambitious. And so in retrospect, they had to be revised downwards. If we look at the overall process of producing vaccines, you know, it's a biological product, it is hard to immediately scale up. So there's been really a contraction in the global producers of vaccines for years. There's been a downward trend. So it's quite bad timing in terms of the pandemic to hit because if anything, instead of in 2020 or the very end of 2019, we were actually in a worse position than you know in 10 years before then in terms of the vaccine production capabilities. It is a very difficult business. And so looking forward, we're going to have to look at what's the best way to solve that and make sure that first step can be moved at a much quicker rate. So there's that going to the manufacturers is also thinking about developers who have passed clinical efficacy trials and you know a big topic of conversation amongst colleagues at the WHO has been you know whether these manufacturers who are normally perhaps competitors actually partner and team up so that if they have spare capacity to address different parts of the world and that this could go beyond just the pandemic. And this is why the WHO has set up a mechanism, and that's called the COVID-19 Technologies Access Pool, or CTAP. And that was already back in May 2020, because they were anticipating that anyone with a product or technology or knowledge of data could pitch in, could share, and link producers and developers who have that know-how and support those who have you know limited capacity with their own. So we have to go in terms of looking at why, not just because of, yes, of course, we have this unprecedented demand, but what could we do because pandemics, again, have been one of the top 10 global health threats on WHO's list you know, every year for the past decade. You know, these types of arrangements would have ideally been thought out in advance that we could bring them into action when needed. This is going to affect pharmacies. Well, I imagine it means that We will be vaccinating at a slower rate, although right now at the time of our conversation, we've already surpassed 10 million. So from a global comparison, we have done phenomenally well. And that has been a combination of ensuring that having those vaccine orders early, taking the JCVI, as well as Kate Bingham have had a fantastic strategy in terms of procurement and purchasing, taking a big gamble in terms of not knowing that any of these vaccines were going to have any effect and making sure that they paid a premium price to get first access. And that's what has sparked a row with the EU. And so it's that combination of early access, having enough supply ordered early in the pandemic, and then utilizing these mass testing sites alongside even churches, which is really good creative use of existing infrastructures and a limited number of pharmacies. And some of the requirements around that have limited the number of pharmacies that are eligible to participate. 
And I think that is short-sighted. We will be living with COVID for many years to come. And we already have a workforce that is trained to vaccinate. So we should be leveraging all the existing public health infrastructure. And this is one of the things that Biden's administration have done, I think, well. And of course, there are many things that uh, coming out of the era of Trump have been problematic in terms of uh, getting up to scale, but he has made the political promise for the first 100 days of his administration to vaccinate 100 million Americans. And central to that is community pharmacies, independent chains, all of them who are going to be vaccinating over 10.5 million people per week. They're going to catch up to speed very quickly. And I think it won't be too long before they surpass the UK. So I think from a strategic perspective, England, there's almost 11,500 pharmacies. So, you know, if we're only using hundreds to thousands, we should be ramping that up and then making sure that that is a regular part of the services offered once we come out of the acute phase of the pandemic and it'll be offered like any other service. And what do you think that the barriers are to recruiting more pharmacists in to delivering these services? Because I agree with you, you know, we have pharmacists who are ready and able to vaccinate. So why aren't we using them? This is not due to a lack of willingness amongst pharmacists themselves. I think pharmacists are all banding together to say, you know, we're here and we're ready and we want to contribute uh, to this historical immunization campaign. I think it's, again, more to do with the government contracts and requirements of facilities that are the limiting step. And so that would take ensuring that the government understands how pharmacies could safely vaccinate people and, again, getting creative with that because, of course, some pharmacies, of course, may not be suitable just due to small spaces, etc. But there are plenty that could make a safe site for people to come in and get a, a vaccine. And we have heard from the community pharmacies that have participated in it and the elderly who found it far more convenient to actually you know, pop down the road than it was to drive to the nearest mass vaccination site, particularly for those who've been shielding for since March, you know, some individuals had thought that the idea of going to a place where there were going to be a huge overturn or turnover even of people, they felt it was too big of a risk. And again, so we should be taking into consideration preferences of the community as well. But again, I think this is a challenge for our profession to be able to communicate the highest level of government the value and exactly how we could do it in a safe way, which at this stage, I think pharmacy has sort of been reserved as a later stage of the vaccination campaign to really draw out on the full power of our pharmacy workforce. So I think it's just going to take convincing the Ministry of Health a lot of patients have a really good relationship with their pharmacists. So in this kind of worrying time, they probably are more likely to want to go and get the injection from their local pharmacist who they're familiar with. Like you said, instead of going to these large test centres where they might feel a bit overwhelmed, especially if they've been shielding. Well, certain vaccination centres, it's a, the turnaround time is one minute per one vaccine. So they're going at a, you know, almost factory assembly line rate. People, and I received so many queries about trying to understand the vaccine, the difference between the vaccines, you know, people have different underlying health conditions, what should they be worried about? Really, 
I think that the reason we're at 10 million is because of the ability for these mass sites to operate at speed, but also ensuring that people have that understanding of of the risks and benefits, I think will reach more people who might be in that sort of borderline vaccine hesitancy group. We also have some evidence to show that BAME communities in particular are more vaccine hesitant, and yet they are more likely to have poor health outcomes and even die of COVID-19. And they have very detailed breakdown of that even down to the different ethnicity levels. So if we look at Pakistanis, it's about 3.21 times higher risk of death than the average population. And that's significant. And just below them, we have the Black community and Indian British also we're looking at actually lower at about 1.5 times more likely to die. So In that instance, certainly I think pharmacists and our very diverse workforce would be really helpful in perhaps transcending certain language barriers and playing a more active role. And, you know, there have been really amazing ambassadors for this. So Dr. Mahendra Patel has been a real champion of ensuring that BAME communities are getting the appropriate support and outreach. And I think, you know, all of the different community pharmacists, hospital pharmacists, people in all different parts of our profession have been playing an important part either in the front line or in trying to educate the public. And I think this is one particular area in which pharmacy can make a a big difference, and that's within the BAME communities themselves. And I just wanted to ask you about the dosing interval for the COVID vaccine. So we know a lot of the vaccines have been delayed to a 12-week interval. And yeah, I just wanted to ask your opinion on a shorter dosing interval. So this also has been one of the points of contention for the government, particularly because there has been no evidence as of yet, or as of this week, there has been a paper that has shown that for the AstraZeneca vaccine in itself, the protection is greater after a 12-week gap, and there is a two-thirds reduction in transmission. So if we look at that vaccine, certainly there is emerging evidence to support that uh, dosing gap. And also, as we heard from the chief medical officer, that even at reduced efficacy, so the WHO recommendation is to use a vaccine that is over 50% efficacy. And that's sort of the bar. And the FDA in the U.S. is also happy to approve for emergency authorization any vaccine that hit that bar. And if we think about really what the crunch points are here in the U.K. and other countries that are struggling in responding to the pandemic, it's the number of hospitalizations and severe cases. So even if there is a reduced efficacy with Pfizer, etc., it will still give you enough protection to prevent these very severe cases that require ICU treatment. And when we look at it from that perspective, in terms of protecting the NHS, if we have milder cases overall, that is still a better outcome because we have less deaths and we're able to save more lives as a result than everyone getting the replica of the Pfizer trial, a different vaccine, where there was a shorter gap. And this happens when we have clinical trials. These are ideal conditions with a smaller group of people. And this is literally a global crisis. We can't apply perfect conditions all the time. And this is one of the times where 
it's been controversial, but certainly it means that we have also been able to get protection for a wider number of people who otherwise could have ended up in hospital. And I think that was the ultimate goal of the vaccination program, above and beyond even getting you know, no symptoms at all, is to protect the NHS and reduce the number of deaths associated with the disease. So again, one that I know other countries are not following, but we had the highest death rates per capita in the world. So maybe it would have been a mistake to do what other countries were doing. The WHO, however, at that time, again, taking the more conservative stance, said that in exceptional circumstances, they could perhaps understand the judgment to six weeks, but they did feel uncomfortable to support anything further than that. But, you know, these are exceptional times. So I do think that when we consider vaccine strategy, it's not as easy as people may imagine. Yeah, and I guess it just has to kind of be reactionary to what's going on at the minute for each country. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and, and I would say the UK has been three steps behind the virus at every stage of the pandemic. And really only now are we starting to discuss borders seriously. And even then, hotel quarantine is only being encouraged for the high-risk countries. So it seems as though, to me, we're not really learning from the successful models in South Korea, Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand, etc., that we're able to implement that early on and then move to a flexible model. Yeah, it is a shame. And just kind of on that, with the new variants that have been emerging over the last couple of months in the UK. I guess a lot of people will be worried if they're getting the vaccine, if it's going to work against the new variants. What kind of advice can pharmacy teams give patients about new variants and with regards to the vaccines? Well, what we are hearing from the pharmaceutical companies is that they should be able to still give protection to patients, even if the level of efficacy drops. However, it could also mean that As tweaks are made to vaccines, if it does show that the efficacy drops too low, then they will have to change the vaccine. They seem to be confident that they will be able to create the necessary tweaks as we sort of do every year to the flu vaccine, and that that could range anywhere from six weeks to several months. But even then, that could just create havoc in the global supply chain. So that is, I think, very rational reason to be concerned about. So hearing people out about their worries is certainly, I think, an important part. But what remains the same is that the behaviors that we have been telling, you know, public health guidance, all of that still applies and even more so now. So I think that pharmacists advice should be, again, going back to basics with the public health advice about wearing masks, about not mixing households, limiting travel, only going out for essentials, reinforcing all of that, because that will reduce level of overall community transmission. So just forget the borders for a minute. If we just think internally, if we are allowing transmission to occur unchecked, then we're allowing more variants to occur because viruses naturally mutate all the time. That's part of the natural life cycle. There's only a few that are of significant concern. For example, B117, Brazilian and the South African variants are these of significant concern. So if we take a maximal suppression approach, that should lead to minimal mutations of significant concern. Individuals cannot 
have a direct impact on border control, but they can avoid taking unnecessary trips. I mean, it's already actually against the law to just go on holiday anyhow. So having that conversation about what everyone needs to do to protect themselves and their communities, I think that remains. As far as whether that means they should delay their vaccine, absolutely not. If they get invited to get that vaccine, then don't wait around to find out what's happening with the variants. Get vaccinated because, as we say, although the efficacy may be affected at this stage, we're hearing that from Pfizer, from Moderna as well, that there should be enough immunoprotection to keep people from getting very ill. And that is, again, the most important part of the vaccination campaign. And I'm sure as well, pharmacists have an important role in reminding patients with what you said about back to the basics, is that they don't just stop doing that now that vaccinations are being rolled out and, you know, that people are still taking the necessary precautions. The thing about the B117 variant, we do know that this is more transmissible. This is now the dominant strain in the UK. The early evidence suggests also an increase in disease severity. So all of this highlights the importance, again, taking it back to that policy level, that spells out the case for better border control. And when we look at B117, it was imported in July when we had a came out of lockdown and went into sort of this free-for-all travel, go back to work, go back to school, go eat out to help out all at once. And it was at that point that B117 was introduced into our borders. And with variants, we do see that they are being imported. And that's why there's such heated debate at the moment to what extent that should occur. Because currently, many public health bodies do say that if you have too much wiggle room, then people start to find ways to get around, you know, direct flights, etc. People are just hopping into other areas to go the indirect route and viruses, you know, they don't just arrive from direct flights. Okay, so what else do we know about the variant so far? So we knew about the B117 variant, or the UK health officials actually informed the WHO about a different variant of the virus causing COVID-19 circulating within K as early as December 14th. This is actually before Christmas when there was a big debate about whether we should cancel Christmas or not. Since then, as of the last week of January, there have been cases detected in 70 countries across the world with imported cases as well as community transmission. We know this is the dominant strain now in the UK. We also know that through epidemiological analysis and modeling that the increase in transmission has increased from 1.1 to reproduction number of about 1.5. And the UK also has some early evidence to indicate that there is more disease severity. But we must emphasize that this is still preliminary and more analysis is required to corroborate these findings. Interestingly, we know that this variant impacted PCR tests that target the spike S gene of the virus because most countries use molecular assays targeting several different viral genes. So their assays are likely to, to continue to work. In the UK, again, this S gene target failure is being used as a proxy for identifying the variant. This is how we know that essentially 
B117 is being identified for people who are testing positive. And in countries where this variant is not predominant, S gene target failure may not directly identify the strain. And so it requires confirmation by phylogenomic sequencing. And this is something that the WHO has called for in terms of ensuring that these cases are being sequenced around the world. And so we need to increase the capacity for genomic sequences in countries. And so genomic sequencing just in the UK is not enough. We also need the sequences to be shared with the global community and encourage wider sharing of sequences along with their metadata. So we're looking at uh, the important epidemiological, clinical, and other information of the patient so that we have a better understanding of where these are being transmitted, to what extent. And there are parts of the world where we're just in the dark about it. And that really needs to come to light through global coordination. Another interesting part about the South African variant, again, This is present in 31 countries at this stage, and that's only going to grow. Initial studies confirm that there is higher transmissibility, but we don't know if it causes severe disease yet. However, I imagine that just like how we found out with the B117 variant, that it took some time to gather that evidence that this could be the case as well for the South African variant. So research is ongoing, but we could see that... uh, The recent laboratory studies, there has been an interesting report out of Cambridge about this variant being less susceptible to antibody neutralization. So that could have an important clinical impact as well. And again, we should be expecting that there could going to be more variants emerging as these selection pressures start to increase. And this is brought about by the widespread transmission of the virus, also countered by a rising vaccination campaign. So if we think about viruses and how there are trillions and generations of viruses, that they are very well adapted to evolve. So from that perspective, where us humans have only had since the beginning, where we could actually trace the first origins of man is only about 15,000 generations of people versus viruses. There are more viruses than there are stars in the sky. So they do have this evolutionary advantage to be able to mutate very quickly, particularly when there's more selection pressure through vaccination campaign alongside this transmission, the increased transmission of the virus. So again, this is going to be a really critical point within the pandemic as we see this kind of war between vaccine and virus. That was Oksana Pajzik, the Global Engagement Lead and Senior Teaching Fellow at UCL School of Pharmacy. In this podcast, we spoke about the supply chain issues with the COVID-19 vaccines and the emergence of new variants in the UK. For more news and updates on COVID-19, please check out our hub on our website. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to CND Podcasts on SoundCloud or your preferred Android app. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to CND Podcasts on SoundCloud or your preferred app. Thank you for listening.